So as I said, we are continuing our study in the book of Ruth. Today we are concluding it. And so we've spent three previous weeks going through this book, and then now with four chapters in the book of Ruth, we are wrapping it up today as we look at Ruth chapter 4. And if you're new with us, thank you for visiting. My name is Rob. I'm, I'm the lead pastor here. It's, this is just kind of the normal practice of what we do. So what you've seen this morning is pretty much what you're going to see anytime you come here. We're going to spend time being called to worship. We're going to spend time confessing our sin, spend time being assured of the grace that's been offered to us in Christ, and then we're going to sing some songs together as well. And now we come to the portion where we hear God's Word. And so this is just a normal pattern where we just look at a book of the Bible, and we're looking passage by passage. And what I try to do, or anyone who's up here, we just try to help you better understand what is in that passage of Scripture. Because we think if you better understand what God's Word says, then you will better understand who God is. God being the greatest possible thing that we can meditate on, the greatest possible thing that we can experience. If you better understand that, then you will more so enjoy who God is. So you see what he has done for us. And so we hope that will take place as we look at Ruth chapter 4. And so if you've turned there, you can follow along as we start in verse 1. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful story of redemption. You are immensely kind, and we see that in the life of Ruth and Naomi. We see your hesed, your kindness throughout this passage, and we praise you for it. Lord, as we see this passage and see the pain and the hurt that Ruth and Naomi experience, we pray for those who today are hurting. For those who are in physical pain, we pray for healing. Those who are sick, that treatments would work. God, we pray for those who are in emotional pain, where there may be a broken relationship, or depression, or discouragement, or spiritual pain with ongoing besetting sin. God, we do pray for healing, that they would find their healing in the great Redeemer that you have provided. God, we pray for our children. We thank you for kids. Thank you that you have filled this church with children. And Lord, we do pray now for their salvation that they would know who Christ is and that he would be their greatest treasure, that they would be discipled by their parents, they would be discipled by those who serve here, they would be discipled by friends, Lord, that their discipleship would be rich and that they would love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they would love their neighbor as themselves. God, we, as we think of our neighbor, we pray for those that we had conversations with at the picnic yesterday. Lord, we pray that they would know the love of Christ. That they experience some of the love of Christ just in us serving them. But Lord, that they would get plugged into a gospel-centered church if they're not already. Even if that's not here, Lord, we ask that you would plug them into a body. That they would be converted if they don't know you. And they would be a healthy member of a body. Lord, we pray that they too would love Christ above all else. And Lord, today here in Westerville, we see that the Westerville Music and Arts Festival is going on. Lord, as all those people come together, we do pray for their safety, protect them. And God, thank you for the Chamber of Commerce who puts this on. Lord, we do pray for our Chamber of Commerce and ask that they would uh, do events in a way that honors you. That Christians would enter into the Chamber of Commerce and that they would have sway. And that slowly but surely there would be a more Christian influence even on the events that take place here in Westerville. We pray that Christians in this city would be intentional about partaking in trying to bring about change. God, as we think of our neighbors and those we served yesterday, we are grateful for Huber Heights First Baptist Church who drove up 
to participate with us and serve us. Bless them. Thank you for their kindness to us, for the love that they've shown us, where we ask that they were enriched and encouraged as they partook in serving alongside the body. And we pray for Gethsemane Baptist Church in Marengo. God, we pray for your blessing on them as they come together to proclaim the word. And Lord, let your people there be sharpened. And anyone who is lost there who does not know you, let them understand the gospel for the first time. And Lord, we pray now for Jeremy and Suheili Garcia as they are here stateside before going back to serve in the field. We pray for rest. Give them rest, Lord. Let them be rejuvenated. And Lord, allow them to have fruitful labors as, as they go back. Be with us as we look at this passage. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us. Help me to speak clearly. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. On July 2nd, so just a little bit over a week ago, there was an obituary in the Florida Times Union. And I'm going to read a portion of the obituary, but it's for a man named, by the name of Lawrence Paff Sr. And here's what was written about Lawrence Paff Sr. It says that Lawrence Paff Sr. was born in Belmont, New York on April 16, 1941. He passed away on June 27, 2022, living a long life, much longer than he deserved. He is survived by his three children. No, four. Oops, five children. Well, as of 2022, we believe there's one more that we know about, but there could be even more. His love was abundant when it came to himself, but for his children, it was limited. From a young age, he was a ladies' man and an abusive alcoholic, solidifying his commitment to both with the path of destruction he left behind, damaging his adult children and leaving them broken. Lawrence Sr.'s hobbies included abusing his first wife and children. It will be challenging to miss Lawrence Sr. because he was narcissistic. He was incapable of love. Lawrence Sr.'s passing proves that evil does eventually die and it marks a time of healing, which will allow his children to get the closure they deserve. Lawrence Sr. can be remembered for being a father to many and a dad to none. Quite the obit. Not what I would like to be written about me, and I imagine not what any of you would like to have written about you when your time comes. However, what we see in this obituary is that this man his kids needed a dad. But in his eyes, that price was too high to pay. He was unwilling to be a dad. He was so selfish and narcissistic that he chose to live for himself, and he ended up causing a great deal of brokenness in his family. And as we look at Ruth 4, we see that there is a price to pay, that Ruth needs a redeemer, but there's a price to pay. And we'll see con contrasted a man who is unwilling to pay it and someone who is willing to pay that. But what we see is that as we see this obituary of a father who is unwilling to pay the price necessary to bring what his kids needed, we see contrasted to that, our father, God, being willing to pay the price to provide us with a redeemer. Each week I try to give us kind of one sentence. What is the main point of this passage? If you want to remember anything from today, it's this, that God has not left his people without a redeemer. 
God has not left his people without a redeemer. And so just some background as we look at this. Ruth was written after King David took the throne. We saw in that, uh, that genealogy at the end there that Obed fathered, or Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And so it's clearly written after David has already, already taken the throne, already been born. And so say that it was written um, probably prior to 1050 BC because earlier in the book it also said that this was during the time when the judges ruled. So it's after David, it's during the time when, or there's a, sorry, there's, there's a time when the judges are taking place before King David. And so these are tribe leaders who essentially are called on when the nation of Israel is going astray. And someone comes in to oppress them, and so someone needs to rise up. And these aren't really political leaders, these are more so military leaders. And the way that it's described is that it's a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. One commentary said that this story is a clear example of virtuous womanhood and strong manhood. Virtuous womanhood and strong manhood. And what's interesting about this book is that this this entire book is devoted to the well-being of two women. There's no other book in Scripture where we'll see it devoted to the entire well-being of the story of a woman. And we see that here with two women. This book is entirely devoted to to their well-being and how the Lord took care of them. And the overall theme that we've been seeing with Ruth is that it's God's people experiencing his sovereignty, mercy, and covenant kindness. So what we see as we look at each chapter of the book, God's sovereignty, his mercy, and his covenant kindness. That covenant kindness, that faithful kindness, faithful love, is the word, the Hebrew word hesed that we've consistently been talking about. That God is faithful even when we are not. Now, in this final chapter, we see three points. You can see them in your bulletin. We see the cost of redemption. We see the reality of redemption. And we see the effects of redemption. The cost, the reality, and the effects. And so let's look at those first six verses where we see the cost of redemption. Now, remember, Boaz had just told Ruth that he will redeem her. But he's an honest man, and he says, there is someone closer than me, and so I, I need to look into this. And this is the night before, and he tells her, hey, look, I will look into it immediately. Boaz has some interest in Ruth. Ruth has interest in him, but he, he's an honest man. He does what is right. And so he says, there's, there's someone closer, so I, I'll look into it immediately. And so he goes to the city gate. This is his way of looking into it. Now, the city gate, it's helpful to understand some background about the city gate. The city gate was a popular place. So it's essentially where everyone in the city would regularly pass through. So think, if you're in Westville, think of Uptown. Or if you're in a town that has a city square, think of that city square. And so at the city gate is where legal transactions would take place. It's where judicial proceedings would take place, the official business of the town. And it's here where people are passing through that Boaz goes because he knows he needs to find this redeemer. Now, there's a lot of people passing through. It's not like there's only one or two people going by. And so by the sovereignty of God, he allows this closer redeemer, whose name we're not given, to come by. And Boaz tells him, hey, friend, sit down. And this guy's on his way to do something. It's not like he's just wandering around aimlessly. He's got stuff to do. Yet Boaz tells him to sit down. And what does he do? Okay, he sits down. 
And then Boaz goes and gathers 10 elders of the city. These would be the, the higher ups of the city who made sure that all the official business was recorded accurately. And they led the city. And so Boaz goes and grabs them. Hey, you, you come over here. You come over here. Yep. And, and they're all saying, okay, sure. I'll come, I'll come over there, sit down. Boaz is clearly a well-respected man in Bethlehem. And so when he is telling these people, hey, come here and sit down, if he was not a well-respected man, if he was an unrighteous man, they would have just said, hey, you go about doing your own thing. We've got other things to do. We don't have time of day for you. But as we've seen throughout this book, strong manhood in, in Boaz, he's righteous. He does what is right. He's a successful businessman. He's got plenty of people working under him. These people respect him. And it's because of him acting in a righteous way that he's able to gain a hearing with these people. He didn't have an appointment. He went there to get an appointment. And he gets one immediately. He calls the man over. He calls the ten elders over. And all of a sudden, here we are. We are conducting business. And so the ten elders would have been enough to constitute a legal assembly. These men would have been full citizens of Bethlehem. And they would have served as witnesses to what was about to take place. They don't know what's about to take place. Boaz has something he's trying to do, but, and they're willing to come in there without having any knowledge of what Boaz is trying to do. But they will serve as witnesses. And so now, as we look at this passage, we see that Boaz tells the men about this field, about Naomi's field, and what his intentions of it, or what his intentions are for it. And so now these, these laws, these redemption laws that were in place where Boaz or the closest family member could buy a field, these were in place because it was intended for land to stay within a family. So think of Israel, right? It's a relatively small nation, but God has given it a land to have. And within that nation of Israel, there are 12 tribes. Within each of those tribes, there are clans. And within each of those clans, there are families. Each family has a limited portion of land. Now, Naomi inherited the land from Elimelech, who was an Israelite, and Naomi was an Israelite, but she left from Moab. And so now she has this land, but she's in a really difficult place. Boaz, in his kindness, has been taking care of her and Ruth, but long-term, she's got to figure something out, especially if Boaz isn't willing to redeem them. And so she's willing to sell the land. Now, in an agrarian society like Israel, selling land was a big deal. Land was very valuable. You, that was essentially the way that you accumulated wealth. Now, to sell off this land in a redemption price is a bargain of a deal. So think of like a foreclosed home, right? So it's not exactly... Uh, selling it so she can be set up for, for a long time is her selling it so that for at least the foreseeable future, her and her family could be taken care of. Now, what this was, as she's selling this, is, is really designed to be a law of love rather than an opportunity to make a ton of money. Because as, as I said, just, it gets sold at a relatively low price. But however, there is still some financial gain to be had. One commentator put it this way, said for very little money, he could carry out, this redeemer, he could carry out a respected family duty and perhaps enhance his civic reputation. Financially, the investment was a bargain without risk. His little investment would develop into years of productive, profitable harvest. It would enlarge the 
the inheritance of his heirs. How could he lose? So even though he wouldn't, or even though Naomi would not get a ton of money out of this, she would get enough. And this man would now have land until he had to give it back in the year of Jubilee, which is every 50 years. But he would have land to where he could continue to reap the benefits of it and grow his inheritance for himself and for his offspring. And so the closer relative, understandably, says in verse 4, I will redeem it. He says, yeah, I'll redeem that. Boaz told him about this field that's being sold, and he says, yeah, this is a good deal. Like, sure, why not? Why wouldn't I? But there's more. Boaz intentionally held some stuff back, and so now he reveals the rest of the deal. We see in verse 5, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, two things I want to see about Ruth there. Two things. First one is this. We see her described as Ruth the Moabite. Throughout this book, we continuously see Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, the Moabitess. Ruth and Naomi came from Moab. Now, as a reminder, Moab is not on friendly terms with Israel. So if you come into Israel and you are from Moab, you are not someone that Israelites are super keen to take care of. And so this man recognizes now that if he buys the field, he's also going to have to marry a Moabite, a foreigner. Now, Ruth, identified as a Moabite, someone who's far from Israel, but then also identified as Ruth the widow. You see that if you redeem the land, then he's saying you should also have to marry Ruth in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, what would happen is if you, if you redeemed a widow, then the firstborn son of you and that widow was actually considered the son of the dead man. So therefore, any inheritance that would come after would have to be split between that son of the dead man and your children who may come after that. So it immediately splits the inheritance. And so this man is unwilling to do that. He says, he says take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. This man is willing to get a bargain, but then once he realizes that it's going to come at a higher price than what he initially thought, he doesn't just get to gain from this. His inheritance is going to be split. He says, actually, you know what? I'm out. I can't do that. The redemption price was too costly. The price was too high. The Redeemer recognizes that everything that was his would go to the, their firstborn son, which would not be considered his son. And if they had any children after that, then it would be split between those two parties. So he's unwilling to do it. Redemption, as we see just in those first six verses, it comes at a price, that it is, in fact, costly. Ruth needs a Redeemer who not only has the ability to pay the cost, but also has the willingness. Now this man, the closest Redeemer, the ability is there, but the willingness is not. So Christian, when we have the ability to help those in need, do we also have the willingness? Ruth needs someone who has the ability and the willingness. This first Redeemer only has one of those things. When we have the ability, do we also have the willingness? Do we want 
to show the love of Christ to others, one of the primary ways that we can do that is by also showing the willingness of Christ to others to help out. Doesn't mean that you have to do everything. You can't say yes to everything. You can't help everybody out there. However, do you have willingness to to help out? Is it a regular pattern? Is it a regular rhythm of your life to serve those who are in need? If you're single in the room, then you have more bandwidth to do this. This is a particular unique season of your life where you can help out in a greater capacity than what others may be able to, but families don't think that you're off the hook. Families in the room, you have an opportunity to model what it looks like to serve those who need help with your kids. You get to model it to your children, what it looks like to, hey, mom and dad really value. We want to have the willingness of Christ. We have the ability, but we also want to have the willingness that Christ has. And so kids, watch. This is a valuable thing for us to do. It's an opportunity for you to disciple your children and show them, hey, this is something that we care about. And we care about it because Christ saw us in our need, in our need saw, saw us in our vulnerability, and he not only had the ability, but he also had the willingness. The closer redeemer was unwilling to pay the cost. Boaz, however, was willing to pay the cost. And so now we see the reality of redemption. So we saw the closest redeemer refused his right to redeem the land. And so now, in verses 7 and 8, we're given a little history lesson on what it means to confirm transactions. So we see that it says to take off the sandal and give it to the other. If you would, do me a favor and turn to Deuteronomy 25. So you see Genesis at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then you'll see Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy 25. Starting in verse 7. Okay, in verse 7 we see, this is laws concerning what's called leveret marriage, which is kind of what we're talking about with Ruth. So we see, if a man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. This is a super dishonorable thing. I know you might not catch it right there, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. This is super dishonorable, okay? You don't want that title for your house. You don't want that over the entryway to your home. This man has the opportunity to care for the vulnerable. And what we see is God's heart is for the vulnerable. There's these laws instituted within his land to care for those who are in need. And when those who are able are unwilling, God is displeased. And so we see that even in his law, he says, hey, if the brother isn't willing to do it, then let's bring dishonor to him in front of all of the people. Boaz, however, didn't need someone to take off the sandal. He was willing to do it himself because Boaz is a good man. He's an honorable man. He willingly chose 
to redeem the field and Ruth. He was willing to do what the first man was unwilling to do. And there's an intentional contrast here between the first man and the second man. The first man, the closer redeemer, he's more concerned about his own personal well-being. He's more concerned about his inheritance and the inheritance he's going to give to his children. He doesn't want that to be split. He also only sees what he can gain. Further, he's unwilling to do what is costly. And fourth, because of that, his actions lead to the suffering of others. That's the first man. But the second man, Boaz, is not more concerned about his own personal well-being. He's more concerned about the well-being of others. He sees not what he can gain, but what he can provide. Boaz is willing to do what is costly, unlike the first man. And because he's willing to do that, it, not, it doesn't lead to the suffering of others. It leads to the flourishing of others. There's an intentional contrast between the first man and the second man. And there's a similar theme with the first man, Adam, and the second man, Christ. Adam, who was unwilling to do what was righteous, unwilling to fight against sin, gave in and it caused suffering for all those after him. Christ, however, when he is in the desert being tempted in various ways, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, he does not give in to the temptations. In fact, he does what he can to provide help for others. And after that, all those who are in him can now experience flourishing rather than suffering. So Boaz is willing to pay the price. He draws off his sandal and he says to all the elders, he says, you are witnesses this day. This is why you're here. You didn't know, but I wanted to do this transaction. He's unwilling to do it. I'm willing to do it. Here's my sandal. You see here, I'm, th this is happening. You are witnesses. And they respond and they say, yes, we are witnesses. Look at verse 11. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So there's a few things we need to unpack there. So there's Rachel and Leah, First, and then we got to talk about Perez, Tamar, and Judah. So first, Rachel and Leah. Things you need to know about Rachel and Leah. And they say, may, may she be like Rachel and Leah. These two were the matriarchs of Israel. So between them and their servants, they had the, the 12 tribe leaders of the nation of Israel. Now, Rachel was the most loved of Jacob's wives. Jacob was the husband of both of them. He Rachel was the most loved. And so essentially what they're saying is, may Ruth, may this young woman be as loved as Rachel. Leah, however, was the most fruitful. She was the mother to Judah, and we see that uh, it, from the line of Judah is promised the Messiah. And so they say, when it comes to Rachel, may, may her be most loved. When it comes to Leah, may Ruth be f as fruitful as Leah. May she perpetuate the line of the Messiah. So now, okay, there's Rachel and Leah, that's helpful. But Perez and Tamar. Perez, Tamar, and Judah. What do we need to know about them? We'll just briefly, because we don't have a ton of time to get into it. But Judah is the patriarch of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so each of the tribes are named after the patriarch. And so the tribe of Judah, he is the patriarch of it. Now, he had some sons, and they married, and one of his sons died. And his widow said, hey, I should be given your other son to perpetuate the name of the dead. 
So similar situation is going on. Judah says, yeah, sure, I'll do that for you. And then years go on, never happens. And Tamar realizes that Judah is not going to honor this promise. And so Tamar disguises herself. She ends up sleeping with Judah. And the name of the dead is perpetuated through the child that comes from that, who happens to be Perez. Perez is the patriarch of the clan that Boaz is in. So remember, we have the nation, we have tribes, we have clans. So the tribe of Judah, the clan of Perez. And so this whole clan, likely hundreds of people, came from Judah not being willing to redeem his widowed daughter-in-law. And so what they're saying is, hey, we now see a widow who, Boaz, you are willing to redeem, May she be as loved as Rachel and as fruitful as Leah. And may your household be like that of Perez. May you be as numerous as our clan. May the Lord bless what you are doing. It's now because Boaz, because the second man was willing to pay the price, redemption is a reality for Ruth. It's actually something that can happen now. The man who is willing to redeem is the one who cares for the vulnerable. And everyone who is witnessing this recognizes that it is a good and honorable thing. They respond by saying, may your household be like the household of Perez. May Ruth, your new wife, may she be like Rachel and Leah. Boaz is willing to pay the price for the vulnerable. He doesn't get a great deal of financial gain out of it. He's looking to do what he can. And Christian, one of the things that, not just Christian, I mean all of us, one of the things that we need to ask is that what are our motivations when we go to serve others? Does it reflect the motivations of the closer redeemer or does it reflect the motivations of Boaz? The closer redeemer was motivated by status within the community, by reputation, by financial gain. Boaz, on the other hand, was motivated by what is righteous. What's the right thing to do? He's motivated by love. And so when we do things like we did yesterday, we're trying to just serve the, the community and love on them. Is it because we want the great Instagram pictures? Is it because we want to be able to say, yeah, we do these events? And, or is it because we love our neighbors? What's our primary motivation? I pray that it's the second. Church, let's not serve for status. Let's serve out of love for one another and love for those that the Lord has placed around us. So we've seen the cost of redemption, we've seen the reality of redemption, and now we see the effects of redemption. Now there are short-term effects and there are long-term effects. Okay, so this, this point is going to be broken down into two. Short-term effects is that Ruth receives a husband, a redeemer, and a new identity. This is what Naomi prayed for. If you look at chapter 1, verse 9, just turn back a couple pages there. Naomi, this is Naomi's wish for her daughters-in-law. She says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's praying for this. She, she desires this, that her daughters-in-law would find rest that, in the household of her husband, that they would find rest, but it would be with a husband. And so now what we're seeing take place right here is that God in his sovereignty has answered that prayer. He's provided Ruth rest with Boaz, her husband. Notice also, 
She's no longer Ruth the Moabite. She's taken in. She becomes the wife of Boaz, but never again is she referenced as Ruth the Moabite. She has a new identity. She's now Ruth, the wife of Boaz. Her identity is now in her Redeemer, not in her past. If you are in here, then you are a sinner. We all are. We all have a past we're not proud of. We've all gone astray in various ways. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. However, if you are in Christ, your identity is no longer in that. Your identity is in the perfect righteousness that Christ provides on your behalf. Maybe you've made mistakes even this week that you're ashamed of and you wish you wouldn't have. Brother, sister, if you are in Christ, know that your identity is not in your mistakes, not in your sin. Your identity is in Christ. It's not in your temptations. It's not even in your abilities, what you can do on the positive side. It's not in your accomplishments, the work that you've done. It's in the work that Christ has done. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your old identity is old. If you are in Christ, your new identity forevermore is perfectly righteous because Christ himself is perfectly righteous. So Ruth receives a husband. She receives redemption. She receives rest and a new identity. Naomi receives fullness. So look at, back at chapter 1, look at verse 21. This is Naomi being very honest. She's, she's frustrated about what's happened. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. And she comes back to Bethlehem. People recognize that's her. She, they start calling her Naomi. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Notice that throughout the whole book, she's never again references Mara. So the author of this just has a little humor here. She says, reference me as Mara. He says, yeah, sure, I'll put that there. But the whole rest of the book, I'm going to call you Naomi. But right after that, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Despite her initial thoughts, where she thought God was being unkind to her, where she thought God was being cruel to her, God was using that to bring her back to him. And what we said in that first chapter there is God will use trials to bring you back to him in his sovereignty, in his kindness, in his mercy. And he has, in fact, done that in the life of Naomi. Then he also granted her prayer, her desire for Ruth. Ruth and her are now going to find rest in the house of Boaz. Further, if you look at verse 15 in chapter 4, excuse me, Chapter 4, verse 15, we see that he's also given her a daughter, a daughter-in-law, who loves her and is more to her than seven sons. So in that time, it was more desirable to have a son, and seven was the perfect number. So the idea of seven sons means you have the perfect family. And those who are looking on to Ruth and Naomi's situation are saying, Ruth, that daughter-in-law of yours, Naomi, is more valuable than seven sons. She has done much for you. She has shown her kindness and her hesed, her steadfast love toward you. She is a wildly valuable daughter-in-law, Naomi. And if you look at verse 14 in chapter 4, we see that Naomi, despite what she thought about being empty, 
She has a daughter-in-law who is worth more than seven sons. She's been brought back to Yahweh. She's been given rest in the house of Boaz as she prayed for her, for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But now she's also been given a redeemer. Chapter 4, or excuse me, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Now this redeemer, throughout the book we've been talking about, this redeemer is Boaz. But in this particular part, portion, where they're talking about a redeemer, they're actually talking about Ruth and Boaz's son, Obed. If you look at the end of uh, verse 15, this redeemer, who is more to you than seven sons, has, or Ruth, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So that redeemer they're referencing is Obed, who is going to be a restorer of life to Naomi. In her old age, he's going to be a nourisher of her. He's going to take care of her. So what they're saying is, God has answered your prayers. He has provided you with kindness. He has provided you with what you need to be, to be taken care of physically. But also, he's given you the rest. He's given you a redeemer. He's also taken care of you long term with a grandson who's going to care for you in your old age and be a restorer of life, which is just a great descriptor of what a redeemer is. A restorer of life. We who are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, have been given a redeemer who's a restorer of life. But then we also see the long-term effects. Now the long-term effects are seen primarily in the genealogy. So for those who skim through the genealogies, there's stuff to be seen there. And if you do a little study on each of these characters, you can see that there's, there's some pretty interesting things that go on. And the, the way that God uses broken people is incredible. But for sake of time, we just need to focus on the fact that in this genealogy, we see the Messiah that Ruth and Boaz had Obed. Obed had Jesse, and Jesse had David. David is Israel's greatest Old Testament king. And God promises throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah is going to come through the line of David. And so through this great story of redemption, God is providing a Messiah. We see a redeemer redeeming the vulnerable on a smaller scale in the nation of Israel, in the clan of Perez, tribe of Judah. But then we also see on a greater scale that through that story, through that line, there will eventually be a greater redeemer who's going to care for the vulnerable, all those who come to him asking for redemption. He is going to redeem, not just physically, but spiritually as well. Christ is the greater Boaz. Christ is the greater David who rules eternally, whose throne is established for all time. The redemption of Ruth and Naomi had short-term effects, but also had long-term effects. Short term, Boaz's, or Boaz's action ends up caring for Naomi. Long term, we see that not the people of Boaz, but the people of Christ are now taken care of. Christian, don't fail to see what God has sovereignly been working in your life. We see his sovereign hand all throughout this story where Ruth and Naomi just, just so happen to come to the field of Boaz, who just so happens to be a redeemer, who just so happens to not be married, and he has opportunity to bring her in. He has not only the willingness, but also the ability. All this is God's sovereign hand working to bring about redemption. And don't think it's just unique to their lives. God is sovereignly working 
in your life as well. To remind you of the great redemption that's been offered in Christ. To remind you that your future is secure if you are in Christ. Just as Naomi and Ruth needed a secure future, the only way to get that was through a Redeemer, we too, as fallen sinful human beings, our future is not secure unless you're in Christ. Because he is securely in the presence of the Father. Look, the only chance, if you are a Christian, of you being taken out of the presence of the Father after this life is if Jesus himself is taken out of the presence of the Father. And that is just not going to happen. If you are in Christ, your future is secure. Women, we've been saying throughout this story that this story is an example of virtuous womanhood and strong manhood. So women... John MacArthur helpfully points out eight ways that Ruth is, in fact, a wonderful example of the Proverbs 31 wife. So if you haven't already, I would encourage you to check out Proverbs 31. It describes a very godly woman, godly wife. John MacArthur points out how Ruth is a model of that Proverbs 31 wife. Eight ways, and for all of our benefit, it all starts with the same letter, D. So here we go. First, Ruth is devoted to her family. Then she delights in her work. She's diligent in her labor. She is dedicated to godly speech. She's dependent on God. She's dressed with care. She's discreet with men. She's not trying to draw a bunch of attention to herself. And she's delivering blessings. So one more time, she's devoted to her family. She delights in her work. She's diligent in her labor. She's dedicated to godly speech. She's dependent on God. She's dressed with care. She's discreet with men, and she is delivering blessings. These are things to aspire to. Men. Boaz provides us with a picture of strong manhood. Boaz walks in righteousness. Now, these ones aren't all going to be starting with the same letter, so you've got to pay a little bit closer attention. Boaz walks in righteousness. He takes his faith into the public square and his workplace. He treats even the lowest of his society with value, dignity, and respect. And he cares for the vulnerable, even at great cost to himself. And he is selfless. We see a great example in Boaz and in Ruth. Things for us to be reminded of things for us to aspire to. And as we talked about that obituary at the beginning with Lawrence Paff Sr., how he was a father to many and a dad to none. He loved himself more than anyone else. And all that self selfishness and narcissism led to great brokenness. Just like between the closer Redeemer and Boaz, there's, a, there's an intentional contrast going on. Now we see another contrast going on between that man that we referenced at the front, which could be any man, and the father that we've been given. God the Father was not selfish. He selflessly gave his only son for us so that we may experience redemption. The son selflessly gave his life for us so that we may be brought to God. And now all of us who are broken, all of us who are vulnerable, can now be redeemed can now be restored, can now be provided for, and our futures can be secure. But it only comes through Christ 
and Christ alone. God knew Ruth's brokenness, and he acted. If you're hurting today, God knows about that, and he's done something about it. The primary thing that he has done is provided a redeemer. He knows our brokenness. He knew Ruth's and her need for redemption. He knows ours, and he knows our need for redemption. And in both situations, he has acted. He has done something. The overall theme of this sermon, again, was that God has not left his people without a redeemer. He has provided a redeemer. And so if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you maybe for the first time to repent and believe the gospel. Trust in Christ. Trust in the redeemer that he has kindly provided. The redeemer that he has provided to remove your sin and to replace your sin with his righteousness. Jesus, Jesus alone, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In his mercy, God has sovereignly led you here this morning to a church that's sharing the gospel with you. Don't let God's sovereign hand in that be overlooked. If you're not a follower of Jesus, respond with faith, repent and believe the gospel. And Christian, you in the room, continue to rejoice in the redemption that God has given you. This story of Ruth being redeemed is a story that helps us see God's sovereign work in redeeming his people. He's in every detail of it. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then he was in every detail leading up to your conversion. Praise him for that. Continue to look to him by continuing to repent, turn away from sin, and believe the gospel that Jesus has paid for it. This story of Ruth, I've been really grateful for. It's because it's been a nice reminder to see how God works in ways that are unexpected. God is working. Don't overlook it. Look to the Redeemer whom he has provided. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your kindness to provide us with a Redeemer. Lord, we are grateful that you have seen us in our vulnerable state and that you have done something about it. We're grateful for your sovereignty, we're grateful for your mercy, and we're grateful for your covenant kindness, your faithful love, your loyal love, even when we don't deserve it. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.